He's 35 years old. He drives an SUV. He smokes two packs a week. He's been engaged for 10 years to the woman he lives with in Provo, Utah. He and his fiance for life have a nine-year-old daughter together. Todd grew up in a Christian home, but the message never really hit home. For him, though he valued the Bible's teaching on love, Christianity as he experienced it in his home growing up always seemed a little judgmental, a little exclusive, a little condemning. Always ready to confess other people's sins, much less ready to confess their own sins, sins of judgmentalism, superiority, triumphalism, critical spirits, controlling behaviors, gossip. But Todd loved his mom and dad, even if they disapproved of his lifestyle. Now Christmas is approaching, and Todd's thoughts return to his mom and dad. Wouldn't it be great if his family could see mom and dad for Christmas? Now, his parents never really approved of his fiancée or of their living together or having a child out of wedlock. And perhaps, you know, their choice to raise this child outside of marriage would never be something mom and dad would approve of. But, but wouldn't it be great if they could all be together, his fiancée, their child with grandma and grandpa at Christmas, together as, as one big family, all at the Christmas table together, opening gifts beneath the tree together, hearing Dad retell the story of Christmas. So tentatively, Todd picks up the phone, and he calls home. He gets an answering machine. These are the kind of people who still have an answering machine. And he starts in. Hi, Mom. Dad. Uh, Denise and I were thinking, thinking how good it would be to, to see you all for Christmas, you know, just like, like old times. And we're wondering if, if you might have room at your table for us, uh, if it's not too much trouble, you know, for, for Christmas together. Um, let us know. And hours go by with no callback. And then a night And then another day passed before a Facebook message pops up on Todd's work laptop. It's from Mom. Dear Todd, we would love to make a place for you at Christmas, but just you. Not that woman you live with and her kid. There's no place at our Christmas table for people living like that. We know you pretend, but you're not a biblical family. And we won't welcome that sort of thing inside our Christian home. Attached is a link to a website about biblical sexuality. And with that, Todd clicks off Messenger. He closes the lid of his laptop. Are sinners welcome? That's the question. It's a question that's going to drive how you live your life, how you live your family, how you relate to your parents, to your children, to your coworkers. It's going to define our mission as a church, how our our ethos, how we go about things in the coming year, in the coming decades, in all of our lives. Our sinners welcome here. It's going to shape how we view those around us and our mission as the family of God. If you want to read in your pew Bible, we're going to be looking at Revelation 22. In your pew Bible, it'll also be on the wall. It's page 1939. We're going to read Revelation 22, verses 12 to 17. This is the end of the Bible. 
This is where it's all heading. Behold, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. What is the church's mission? We see it here. In this last final description, this last snapshot outside of space and time of what the church is between the first coming of Christ and his return. The big picture snapshot of we don't know how many thousands of years of Christian history. What does the church look like from the eyes of God? What is it from outside of time and space? What is it ultimately, objectively, in the eyes of God? It is the bride saying, come. The mission of the church is the welcome of Jesus. The mission of the church, the one real job of the church, is to say to all the cosmos, come. Come to Jesus. Come join us. The Father in heaven is there with open arms. He is welcoming you. He will not judge you. He will not condemn you. Come to him through Jesus and be washed. Let your robes be made clean and white in the blood of the Lamb. There is purification for the worst of sinners and the most self-righteous of religious people. All alike can come. Come. It's the message of the church. It's the mission of the church. The welcome of Jesus is our identity to communicate to all the world. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. This is integral to who we are as Christians. The mission of God is not some side project like we're supposed to come and, and, and worship together and obey a lot of commandments and do a bunch of stuff, and then we have this side project called mission. That's not the heart of God. It's the mission of God that brought you to this church this morning. It is his pursuit of you. The fact that he invited you to come. He sent his son into the world so that you might come. And others who went before you invited you and said, come. You are a product of the mission of God. Even as you are caught up in it and have a role to play in it. This has never been about the church. The church is isn't about itself saying, hey, look at us. Look at our great programs and our ministries and our pretty buildings and all the stuff we do. No, please don't look at us. Not too closely because we're all sinners. We've just been washed. We've been made clean by Jesus who died in our place. 
The church is a signpost pointing to Christ, a community that gathers around the weak and the despised and the lonely and the broken and the guilty and the ashamed and the rich and the poor and the privileged and the unprivileged and encourages all with a vision of Jesus who with outstretched arms is saying right now to you and to all the earth, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The church does this in word and deed, in everything we do and everything we say, saying, hey, I can't fix you, but Jesus is a healer, and he's willing and he's eager to welcome you. He's waiting, he's calling, saying, come. You think back to the only time in the Gospels when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became violent. The only time when he started throwing furniture around the room. What was it? Where was he? He was in the courts of the temple in Jerusalem. There were money changers set up all over the court. Specifically, it was the courtyard of the Gentiles, the one place, the only place in which a non-Jew an unbeliever could come to meet with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was a special courtyard set up for the seeker, for the person who spiritually wasn't there yet, but they had questions, they were curious, and they wanted to honor and investigate the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Jews, who claimed to be the one true God. And when Jesus saw that the Gentiles had been pushed out, that the church in that day had pushed out the non-believer the seeker, the person who wasn't yet ready to sign on the dotted line, Jesus became enraged and he cleared out the temple. He threw their money aside. He got a whip and he chased them out. It's the only time we see rage from the Son of God. And it was a rage without the slightest hint of sin because it was the goodness of God, the welcome of Jesus for the nations, weeping and enraged for those that self-righteous religious people had shoved out. Because they were doing church for their own benefit instead of for the benefit of the nations. It's what we saw in the Old Testament when Abraham was called back in Genesis 12. He was called so that all the nations of the earth could be blessed through him. The Jewish people had an identity to be a signpost to the God of Abraham, pointing all nations in their worship. They were inviting the Gentiles, the unbelievers, to come and join them in worship. Clap your hands, all ye nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. Shout to the Lord, all the earth, worship him with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord, Yahweh, is God. This is what Paul meant when he said to to a group of Christians, to a church, he said, when I came to you, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. The welcome of Jesus in every sermon, in every class, in every, uh, you know, Bible study, in every counseling chamber, the welcome of Jesus to sinners, which is the only thing that has the power to make us clean and then actually to work change in our hearts. It's the mission of the church. It's the welcome of Jesus. And, And this often means letting go of whatever else we might like to communicate because I'm looking out, and I know a lot of you have opinions about all sorts of stuff. The bride says, come. And anything that eclipses that message 
has to be secondary or tertiary at the very, very best. Uh, You know, boy, I don't know about welcoming somebody like that. They might think we're condoning their sin. Uh, As if Jesus welcoming you is condoning your sin. Uh, You know, Jesus is saying you got to let go of that. You're going to find plenty of opportunities in relationships with people to talk about sin. And when you do, it's going to be your own sin you're going to be talking about and showing them what it looks like to bring your own sin to Jesus for washing and cleansing. You're not going to need to point out their sin, not if they're not yet a Christian, certainly. And if they are a Christian, only very hesitantly and only if you really, really love them and are really, really supporting them. Uh, You know, because our message is the welcome of Jesus. Shame within us is so powerful It is so vehement in its ability to tear us down and to send us to very dark corners where we do very shameful things. It's only the love of Jesus, the welcome of Jesus that can pull anyone out of that. And I'm speaking to you who are Christians because you're the ones who need to believe the good news for yourselves. You know, to say come, to be a community that makes room for others, who loves them without judging them, that gives them the freedom to process and to question and to observe and to doubt and and to come to conclusions of their own and ultimately to follow Jesus, to respond to the welcome of Jesus. It's the bride, the bride of Christ, the church, who says, come. Our sins most certainly can condemn us. I mean, that's the whole point. Uh, You know, it's listed right here in verse 15. Your sins will definitely keep you out of heaven if you enter eternity with them, but sinning less will not do you any benefit. Sinning less will not get you ultimately closer to God. What you need is not to sin less. What you need is Jesus. And he's welcoming, and he's giving you a mission to bring the welcome of Jesus to all the earth. What Todd and Denise and their little nine-year-old needed was not somebody's pressure, somebody pressuring them to righteous living. What they needed was Jesus, and that was the one thing they were not able to hear because of all of the other messages that were being sent more loudly. And don't think you can throw this onto the institutional church saying, yeah, those pastors, they need to be doing this. Because he very specifically makes it individual. In verse 17, he doesn't just say the bride says come. That's the church as a body. He says, and let everyone who hears say come. That means Jesus at the very end of the Bible is putting what we call the Great Commission not on the church's shoulders, not on the pastors and the missionaries. He's placing it on your shoulders saying, this is why I redeemed you, so that you could welcome others in the journey. It's the mission of God, the mission of God for his church, the welcome of Jesus. Let every single one who hears me, if you hear Jesus speaking to you, calling to you, if you hear him in his word, and you are receptive, you have a heart that wants to hear him, he's saying one thing to you right now. The last thing he wants you to remember is he wants those who hear to say to all around them, friends, neighbors, associates, family members, come. Not pressuring them, not shaming them, not arguing with them, just inviting, pointing to the cross of Christ, the open arms of Jesus. And look at these early Christians. They're facing terrible persecution, and they have no one to rely upon 
but God and each other as the bride of Christ. They're facing loss, deprivation, injustice, death. They didn't have the privilege of sitting around critiquing churches and programs. They needed each other, and every one of them carried this call. And Jesus is speaking to every one of us, saying, this is not the job for the religious professionals. If I've called you to myself, it's so that you too could take part in my mission of welcoming all the world into my love. You know, uh, there was a study done of Muslims who have converted to Christianity. It was uh, Fuller Theological Seminary School of Intercultural Studies from 1991 until 2007. For 16 years, they did a survey of 750 Muslims who had converted to Christianity. Those surveyed represented 50 different ethnic groups from 30 different countries and, and they gave nine reasons, most cited reasons, as to why they converted to Jesus from Islam. Do you want to hear what they were? Number one, they said, the Christians I know practice what they preach. Number two, the Christians I know appear to have loving marriages in which women are treated as equals. Number three, I see Christian-to-Christian violence is a lot less prominent than Muslim-to-Muslim violence. Number four, they said, I've seen the prayers of Christians heal the disabled and deliver others from demonic powers. Number five, they said, I see the Quran uh, has produced profound disillusionment in me because it accentuates a God of punishment more than love and promotes the use of violence to impose God's laws. Number six, They said God had spoken to them in visions or dreams or influenced and thus influenced their decision to become Christian. Number seven, they said Muslims can never be certain of their forgiveness, but Jesus can give me certainty of salvation. Eighth, they said that as they read the Bible, they had been convicted of its truth. And ninth, and lastly, they said they were attracted to the idea of God unconditionally loving them on account of Jesus. Did you hear in that where they had heard Christ saying, come? Christ was saying, come, yes, in the Bible. He was saying, come in some conversations, but what, he was, what they were really hearing is when they saw a Christian husband and wife working on their marriage, Jesus was saying to them, come, look, do you want this? Come, you can change when they were actually living out their convictions. That was actually evangelistic because Muslims were watching and Jesus was speaking to their heart saying, come. Do you understand? It's not just word. It's word and deed living out the welcome of Jesus. That's the church's mission. Okay, so why is that difficult? It's difficult for a number of reasons. One is because we as Christians can tend to make church all about us. Uh, It becomes all about our programs that benefit us and our families and the services being nice and uplifting and things fitting into our schedules. And, you know, you kind of fill out your schedule, your full life, and then you try to fit worship and ministry in where you can. It's, it's It's so easy to get distracted when our hearts aren't set on the right things when our hearts have not been captivated by the cross on which your God bled and died and suffered the wrath of the Father on your behalf. 
in which your heart isn't captivated by his embrace and his love and affection for you, we can get so easily distracted when Jesus is not our best and only hope, the center of our being, the air we breathe, and the one for whom we long. See, if we're worshiping other gods functionally, then Christ is going to mean relatively little to us. And there will be no overflow from our heart if our hearts aren't filled up with the grace of God. And then certainly we see here in this context the outside pressures. These were persecuted Christians who first received this revelation. They were being sewn into animal skins and thrown into the arena to be devoured by wild animals. They were being beheaded. Their husbands and fathers were being beheaded for not denying Christ and venerating uh, the emperor. Uh, They were being thrown to lions. They were being nailed to crosses so that they would die slowly. They were being imprisoned. They were being beheaded if they were citizens. They were being sawn in two if they weren't. And, And so there's a difficulty that we experience in pushing against that internal voice of self-preservation, that internal voice that says, I don't want to make this relationship awkward. I don't want people to get mad at me. I don't want to face consequences for following Jesus. And yet Jesus is still saying your mission through your words and your deeds, is to say, come. And it requires that we have to keep in step with the Spirit. Did you notice it's not just the bride who is saying, come? It's not just individual Christians. It says the Spirit, the Spirit of God and the bride are saying, come. That means living in the power of the Holy Spirit stepping out and doing things you're not comfortable with, that you've never done before, saying things that you, you'd rather not say, welcoming people, inviting people, asking people, hey, can I pray for you? Would that be okay? When you know it's going to be awkward, but they might actually appreciate it. Uh, being publicly Christian. It means stepping out and doing things you're not comfortable with and trusting that the Spirit of God will fall upon you and you will be given the words to say at the time that you're given them. You know, the office of Jesus is always at the end of your rope. Grace only flows downhill until you get to a point of personal brokenness and and empty hands where you're saying, God, I don't know how to fix this, and I can't control my life, and I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to step out in faith and just trust you that that you're going to protect me and take care of me if I step out in faith and live as your servant and actually say, come, I'm going to trust you that your power will come upon me. I'm going to trust that you will provide for me. That blood-bought loyalty when you've seen your Savior as something so precious that you're willing to suffer every other loss so long as you have Jesus, so long as you can give your brief life in service to him. That's what the early Christians were being challenged with. That's what they were hearing, and they were responding to all the world with the welcome of Jesus so long as I can just say, come. My prayer for 2017, you know, over the last couple years, we kind of laid a foundation with the, you know, book of Romans we went through and just get radical grace, the radicality of a God who, who doesn't just forgive you of your sins, but he clothes you in the righteousness of his son. He, he gives, takes Jesus' resume and puts your name on it so that in the eyes of the Father, if you're a Christian, you fed the 5,000 and you raised Lazarus from the dead and you came to the defense of that woman who was being bullied by religious people and you were the one who always did what pleased the Father and your Father is not an angry ogre. 
who shakes a stick at you. He's your dad, and he loves you. And we started in Romans, drinking deeply of the grace of God. And we went through Matthew, because it's the, the gospel of discipleship that helps us then apply that, that, that gospel power to our lives, to, to our marriages and our parenting, and how we relate to one another, and how we forgive our enemies, and how we, we, we challenge those who have hurt us, and, and actually resolve things and still, instead of letting them simmer. All of that we got from Jesus and in the coming year, my prayer is that that will flow over the top so that every single one of you will be actively engaged in the mission of God a year from now. In word and in deed, we're going to look at Amos in January and February, the Old Testament prophet who said, let righteousness, let, let justice roll down, let righteousness flood the earth. And we're going to look at deed ministry. And then we're going to look at, at more personally what it looks like in terms of our words and how we relate But my prayer is that what we see at the very end of Revelation is that snapshot of the church is something that will capture your heart so that you will be engaged in word and deed, every one of us, in what Jesus is doing here in St. Louis and in all the world. How is that possible? How is it possible to live that way? For the, the only way it is, is if you yourself respond every single day to the welcome of Jesus to you as a sinner that he delights in, as one that he treasures, one that he will give up everything in order to have. The passage says that the followers of Jesus are those who have washed their robes. Jesus says, I bring my reward with me. Those who've washed their robes will have a right to the city of God, the right to the tree of life, to be eternally alive and to thrive spiritually, physically, relationally, culturally, in every way in God forever, to be a community with God and God's family, not just until death but beyond. How often do I hear from church members that say, Greg, you don't know what I've done. This isn't the non-Christian. This is the Christian. They say, Craig, you don't know what I've done. And I'm already a Christian, but my life is stained, Greg. My marriage is stained. My future is stained. My ministry is stained. Uh, And I challenge you with the gospel because Jesus knows all that. But if the Lamb of God has washed your robe with his blood, It's the most powerful detergent the cosmos has ever known. He doesn't see the stain. It's gone, and you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the white robe of righteousness. You're clean now. You've been washed. And though you remain a sinner for this brief life, this vapor of a life, if you have Jesus, friends, you are acceptable to God. He delights in you. He's pleased with you. There's nothing you're going to do to embellish the resume of Jesus. You already measure up. You're already there. I mean, some of you know that feeling when you're invited somewhere for dinner and, you know, you're wearing jeans and flip-flops. You have your ironic T-shirt that you bought 10 years ago when it was cool and you've got a bag of chips under your arm and you knock on the door, you ring the doorbell, the door opens and you walk in and all these people you sort of half know are filling out this place and they're in tuxedos and evening gowns with little hors d'oeuvres in their hands, clinking cocktail glasses together with a little band playing samba in the background and, and they're all staring at you in the door and nobody's saying anything. Uh, that 
feeling that you have that I'm not clothed for this event, that shame that comes over you. You can feel it in your forehead. You can feel it in your chest, the warmth of the shame burning you. Jesus says, you need a white robe. You need a clean robe. But he's the one who runs the cleaning service. He's the one who gives you the clean robe free. If you hear the welcome of Jesus welcoming you, he says, then come to respond yourself every day freely to believe the good news so that you can then invite others to join. Are you thirsty? Is anybody in here spiritually thirsty? My prayer recently, I've been praying it a lot, goes something like this. Sometimes it's the middle of the night. Sometimes it's in the car. Sometimes it's flat on my face. I say, God, I want to know you. That's what's going to give me peace. I want to see your face. I want to know you for real, not just head knowledge, not just conviction. I want to see you, Lord. I want to hear you. I want to know you as, as I am known. I long for you, God. I miss you. I'm thirsty. This life is not quenching my thirst. I need you, God. I need to know you. That's all I want. That's the only thing I want. Everything else is optional. I need you, God. I don't feel like I know you like I should, and I want you. I need you. I long for you. What you're hearing is the prayer of somebody who is thirsty. That means my, my, my thirst is not quenched right now. When you're hungry, the one thing you don't have is food. When you're thirsty, the thing you don't have is water. Jesus says to the thirsty to come to me. Are you thirsty? If you're thirsty, he says you're blessed. He says, let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Look at Jesus. Look at what he came and did to welcome you. You know how an argument goes. Some of you have had them. Uh, You're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, I'm not. You're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, I'm right. You're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. Stop getting emotional. Don't bring my emotions into this. Stop being controlling. You're wrong. No, you're wrong. And it can go on for decades under the surface, sometimes out in front. And and the argument never stops until somebody does what? Somebody decides to take the blame and say, okay, I'll be wrong. That's what Jesus did in your centuries-long argument with God. You blaming him and him blaming you. God himself, who was the righteous one, was the one who stepped up on the cross and took the blame that we deserved in order to end the argument and make peace. And he took the full wrath and punishment for that blame, and he did it so that he could have the one thing he wanted most, which is you. And that's the only thing that has the power to humble us and make us say, no, God, actually, I was the one who was wrong. You are the Holy Lord. It's the power of the gospel to melt our hearts. That's the cross of Christ, the desired of nations, Emmanuel, God with us. When somebody opens up to you with a gesture of welcome and love and acceptance, they come to you with open arms stretched out on either side, and it's a position of incredible vulnerability. And when you picture Jesus right now, 
I want you to picture him with his arms stretched out saying, Come. His arms stretched out because they're nailed there. Nailed in his love. That's where Jesus is taking us as a church. He's taking us on a mission, on a journey. And we don't always know where it's going to lead, but that his gospel would so overflow in our hearts that we would turn to all those around us and join the Spirit of God in saying, Come. It was 1917. It was a piercing winter night in Greenwich Village. Huddled in the back room of a bar known as the Hell Hole was a bohemian gathering of artists and intellectuals and social misfits. Among them were the country's premier playwright, Eugene O'Neill, and uh, the left-wing journalist, Dorothy Day, his close friend, confidant, and drinking buddy. Maybe it was the booze. Maybe it was because the hour was way past closing time. But O'Neill seemed unusually melancholy. And he started quoting from memory the Francis Thompson poem, The Hound of Heaven, which describes our common flight away from God, the God who lovingly pursues us. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears I hid from him. Dorothy Day had never heard O'Neill speak of this poem before, and it sobered her. It sobered everyone who was there. Cigarette smoke curled upward and hung in the air like wispy apparitions. Everyone was hushed and still. And shortly after leaving the hellhole, Day and O'Neill parted company, not to see each other again for a decade. He wrote of a God who failed to make good on his promises of sin and shame and the terror of death. He won four Pulitzers and the Nobel Prize in Literature, but happiness always eluded him. She, however, married twice, conceived twice, aborted twice, and finally bore a daughter by a man she never married. In December 1927, she experienced a Christian conversion and surrendered to the relentless pursuit of heaven's hound, and she actually joined the Roman Catholic Church. Dorothy Day lived a life of poverty, with no income, with no security, caring for the homeless on streets not far from the hellhole. She wrote of a merciful God. Dorothy Day never stopped praying for her friend who had opened her eyes with the words he spoke. She wrote in her autobiography, it's one of those poems that awakens the soul. It recalls to it the fact that God is the soul's destiny. We don't know if Eugene O'Neill was ever awakened spiritually in the same way, but we do know that while he lay on his deathbed in Boston in 1953, that Dorothy Day, his now Christian friend, was with him at his side. She summoned a priest to join them. Keeping vigil, she prayed for him. She prayed that he would at last unclench his fist and grasp the hand that had been reaching out to him for so many years, hoping to hear the words he recited in a bar room on that blustery winter night. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. Let us pray. 
Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, out of our darkness and sorrow and shame, I come to you. Make yourself known to us, Lord, that we might believe the good news and believing your love for us that we might overflow in love for others. We pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.